Father, it is our confession that when all seems lost and broken, the power of the gospel only shines all the brighter to save. Lord, in an era where the idols of man are shaken, where the hopes and dreams, the ambitions, the investments of a pagan culture crumble and shake, when your day of visitation comes, we are reminded of the enduring quality, the absolute power of the living hope we have in Jesus Christ. We also thank you in days such as ours that the glory of Christ shines all the brighter against the futility and the vanity of any <clears throat> who would declare themselves as a power to save, as a false hope, as a false Messiah. Those who would vie for attention and the hopes and the dreams and the, uh, the uh, investments of faith in the people, they only crumble, they only fall. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, has risen. In so doing, he conquered the grave. And in his ascension, he received the inheritance of the kingdoms of the world and the position at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign until all his enemies are subject to him. And we thank you this day because our Lord and Savior, the risen and ascended Christ, has subjected us to his rule by convicting us of our sins, by satisfying the atonement that our sins needed in the blood of his cross, by resurrecting us through regeneration, by the Holy Spirit drawing us from the death of sin unto new birth in Christ our Lord, and by continuing the work of sanctification through that same Holy Spirit as we seek to walk in increasingly covenantal faithfulness before Him. This day, Lord, I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to equip the saints and to call the lost to the only living hope, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. As your word is proclaimed, I pray that you would open the ears of our spiritual hearing to be able to receive its word. I pray that you would open the eyes of our spiritual understanding to understand its glorious depths. And I pray that you would open the mouths of your confessing saints to proclaim the great gospel of Christ alone. And all of this, that you would be glorified, your church would be fortified, and your kingdom would advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. This morning, what an honor and privilege we have, and even as we are in the midst of a Thanksgiving season, I think it is a good reminder to point our soul's attention to the one, the only one ultimately who is deserving of our thanks, Jesus Christ, the reason for which we gather this day, and the sole source of our provision. Everything from our daily bread the meal, no doubt, many of us enjoyed this past week. But more than this, himself as a meal, himself, his flesh and his blood offered to us as the means of our eternal life. Praise his holy name. This morning, let us consider the word of God in Genesis 19. If you have your scriptures with you, turn with me if you would to Genesis 19, 26 through 38. In a moment, we'll read the word together or you'll I'll have you stand for the reading of God's word. The aim of this morning's message is to expound the categories of redemption in spite of drunkenness and incest. Now, that is a provocative aim, is it not? The goal of this morning's message is to expound the glories of redemption in spite of drunkenness and incest. Now, the theme of my message is not something I came up with. I don't think I ever would if it wasn't laid out for me in Scripture. But as I've dug into the context of today's passage, 
I'll tell you, I had to shorten my message because it was much deeper than I first anticipated. The title of this morning's sermon is A Bitter End? Question mark. It would appear that Lot's life has met a bitter end indeed. But is it really the end? That is a question today's message will consider. Now, as you're able, out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand for the hearing of God's Scripture as we turn in our study today and listen to the proclamation of the authoritative and fallible Word of Christ beginning in Genesis 19, verse 25 or 26 and following. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. 34, the next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The first bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Verse 38, the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, one thing is, is certain, we have an example in our text today of how the scriptures are never shy when relaying the truth of sin and its consequences. The scriptures do not give a sheen or a gloss over the landscape of the often corrupt human soul, even those who are counted among the righteous, unlikely ones such as Lot. Yet we find him in this pitiful state, this bitter end. As such, Lot's life appears to be the anti, the anti fairy tale, if you will. Kids have a little quiz for you, a little question for you. Um, first, a show of hands. How many of you kids like fairy tales? Fairy tales? Any fans? I see a few of the girls' hands raised. The guys are too embarrassed to admit they like them. But we all know the truth. When your uh, sisters sit down to watch Frozen, you begrudgingly watch the whole time, hating every hour and a half minute of it. Okay, so at the end of a fairy tale, kids, what is the last words you usually hear? Or what's a kind of the classic? At the end? Okay, that's one example, yes. Help me, help me, I need this analogy. Oh. Whoa, what was that, Isaac? Yeah, they all lived happily ever after. Now, if we were to write a story that encourages us, that's fun, and, you know, closes with a nice buttoned-up uh, end, 
and we can close the book, smile, and lay our head down on the pillow and kiss our kids goodnight, it usually ends with something like that, if not said implied, and they all lived happily ever after. This story couldn't be farther from that structure, could it? Lot appears as a sort of anti-fairy tale. <clears throat> the story could close like this. They all lived tragically ever after. But is that indeed the case? We find at the closing of Genesis 19 a tragic end indeed, but is it truly the end? However, the Bible is unique in another way as well. We've mentioned the Bible is unique and not shying away from, illustrating the depravity of the human heart, even what we would call normally a hero. Everyone from Lot to Abraham, their dirty laundry, David comes to mind, is hung out for all to see. However, the Bible is unique in another way as well. The story of the scriptures is much bigger than any one individual or the fallout of any one chapter in history. Lot and his lineage are not without hope when we view his legacy from the vantage point of generations of redemptive history. We must look further down the line and we see God's hopeful purposes in the account of this man. Nevertheless, as we turn to our text today, the sadness of Lot's pitiful demise is inescapable, right? In Genesis 19, even as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a, quote, event oracle, that's my term I use to describe something that happened in history, but also illustrates a paradigm or a pattern of God's action in history. So Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an event oracle establishing a paradigm of anticipated judgment deserving of the unrepentant. For instance, Jeremiah, and we'll probably cover this in a future message, a sort of excursus of how Sodom and Gomorrah provide an event oracle for understanding God, his actions in history. But note Jeremiah just as a brief example, he compares the judgment of his people to the destruction of Sodom in Lamentations 4:6. Then later he reminds his readers of the cities of the valley, or after reminding his readers of the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah, he continues in 4:11 saying this. This is Lamentations 4:11. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. And this is certainly descriptive of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to the cities of the plains in that whole Jordan Valley region at this time? Well, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath, poured out his hot angle, and kindled a fire against him. So this is our story. We have full vent of God's wrath, and we have a family that lives tragically ever after. <clears throat> Genesis 19 serves to illustrate by way of dramatic extremes a few things. What we find in the context of greater scripture is, Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Lot teach us the following. They teach us about the day of reckoning. Covered that in our last sermon. They teach us of the terrifying judgments of God. How frightening it is to be caught flat-footed and without atonement when the day of God's reckoning is on the horizon. Sodom and Gomorrah teach us this. They teach us also of the shameful consequences of sin illustrated so dramatically, so painfully in the story of Lot as we've read this morning. But alongside all of this is also illustrated the tender mercies of our Lord. We covered that last week. There are several references to mercy that the angels extended to Lot and his family. In one case, literally dragging them, well, though they lingered, from the area that was going to be destroyed. Why did they do this? Because the Lord is merciful. And as we see these things illustrated, we also find 
In summary, in the greater testimony of Scripture, that Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Lot teach us of the reach of God's redeeming power. The reach, the scope, how far and how powerful God will go to save his own. Here we find Lot, in our context today, a wealthy and influential man who once sat in the gates of a well-established city. He's tasted the bitter fruit of worldly comforts. No city can console him now. The empty curses of thinly, thinly painted gold of the world's promises have caught up to Lot as he finally heeds the angel's first instructions, quote, escape to the hills. And now in Genesis 19, at the close of the chapter, he takes refuge in a cave with his daughters. And this is where we find him in our text today. Let me give you a heading for, under which we'll organize our text by four points. Heading is, Lot's legacy in the aftermath of Sodom, illuminated, or you can say highlighted, by the following. So the legacy of Lot after Sodom is highlighted by the following. Number one, his wife's demise. How his wife died is significant. Number two, Lot's shame, the shameful state we find him in. Number three, his daughter's deception, the actions of his children. And then number four, generational fruit. So Lot's legacy in the aftermath of Sodom, after the God gave full vent to his wrath and destroying the city of the plains, cities of the plains of Jordan Valley by fire, nevertheless, <clears throat> a lot is saved. But his legacy is illuminated by these things, his wife's death, his shame, his daughter's deception, and generational fruit. A sober tale indeed. Let us consider first his wife's demise. Lot's legacy, what he serves to teach in the aftermath of Sodom, is illustrated by his wife's death and the way she died. Verse 23, we referenced this last week. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. Three things to notice, one by way of review and two to add to last week. First of all, we have a sort of false God versus true God situation in context here. Commentators have noted that Shamash was a popular God. He was a, a significant or superior deity in the, in the minds of the people of this region, the Near East at this time. And Shamash, he was supposed to rise with the morning sun and correct all the injustices of the night before. But Shamash never did a thing. Why? Because he was a false god and the sun didn't give any hope in and of its own shining. No, the only hope that true justice would be served is the, if the one true God would rise and he would visit the judgment worthy of the crimes of the night before on the people. And so it happened when Yahweh visited the cities of the plains. The sun rose... It had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and when the one true God, who holds justice and righteousness as the foundation of his throne, and the power to deal out the wrath of God, gave full vent to his anger that morning, what happened? He rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. The Lord reigned from the Lord. Now, in our family devotions this week, I, we asked how that could be true. How could it be that the Lord reigned from the Lord? We see reference to dual personhood, if you will. If God is triune, then Yahweh can reign from Yahweh. And we see something of this in this instance where Yahweh, God himself, walks with Abraham, reveals himself in an incarnate sense, per perhaps a pre-incarnate picture of Christ, some uh, scholars think. But here is God revealed in flesh. He has come and visited Abraham. 
And then he sends those two angels beyond to Lot. And this is a judicial reckoning. God is coming to bring a court case, an indictment, to see whether the outcry against these cities is true. He finds that it is true, and so he rains down judgment upon him. The Lord, thus having verified to the Lord with the power to judge, indeed that Sodom is guilty, the rain falls. And then, so we have the Trinity involved. We have the Lord as the superior God, the only one true God. And then the third thing that we see in this judgment is the nature of God's justice coming in the form of rain from the heavens to the earth. And this is repeated oftentimes in Scripture. The plagues of Egypt are another example. From the heavens to the earth, for instance, hail came to destroy that which man had worshipped and invested their hope in, their flocks and their crops, and that which was irrigated by the Nile. Of course, another instance, kids, can you think of another instance when God brought judgment in the form of rain? So we did it. Say again, Sonny. Noah's Ark is absolutely correct. Perhaps the most prominent or perhaps the most dramatic example of this in history is judgment in the form of rain at Noah's Ark. When 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord dumped the waters of the great deep and the skies poured forth from heaven, deluging, drowning the earth in 15 cubits at least of his watery judgment. So this is what's going on. This is the context. It says in verse 25, by this way, or in this way, and then verse 25, he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So this destruction and this judgment was so significant that it affected the region itself. That is to say, that was once a lush valley that drew the attention and affections and the lustful desires of Lot closer and closer. You know, the uh, irrigation... uh, or the uh, fertile area, the soils and everything else that would give way to such great crops to feed your flocks that would prosper at all of, all of this uh, great subst- uh, sustenance. All of that was destroyed. Not just the habitations, but the capacity of the region to produce crops and to maintain cattle and herds. When God's judgment came, even what grew on the ground <clears throat> what, uh, was laid waste. But then we have Lot's wife introduced in verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. What is meant by looking back here? So if you had just been a passerby and you noticed the plumes of smoke rising from Sodom the next day, would you have been killed by just looking at the destruction? No, we know this because Abraham went early in the morning, verse 27, where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of the furnace. But the difference between Abraham, Abraham and Lot's wife was Abraham saw this evidence of the Lord's work and nothing happened. Lot's she, wife, she looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the posture of the heart that was represented in her longing look back at Sodom. Do you remember the command of the angels? The angels had said in 1917, as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life, do not look back. Do you remember the position of the eyes that we have studied in context of Genesis? We turn all the way back to 13. It says in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. In contrast to Lot, verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes 
and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, the implication being this is the land of promise. The direction of the eyes, what holds the attention, what arrests the affections, what holds out hope and desire for the human heart, that's what's in view. We've asked this question, to what do you lift up your eyes? What holds your attention? What drives your hopes and ambitions? Where do you look for salvation, for security, for consolation, and for refuge? In the case of Lot's wife, her attention was arrested by a city whose debauchery was worthy of the full wrath of God's outpouring of judgment in flaming stones that would destroy the habitation and render the earth infertile indefinitely. Yet her heart was in Sodom. So when she looked back, she betrayed a heart of unbelief. She was not a believer. She had all her hopes invested in Sodom. She looked back longingly and in so doing demonstrated that in spite of the mercy of the angels dragging her away from there, man, did she long to return. Have you ever known someone like this? There's a category in theology we call, we call apostasy, where a person renounces their once confessed faith. Sometimes the mercy of God will pull us out. Sometimes it'll happen by way of a Christian home. Sometimes it will happen by way of association with the Christian culture or the church you grow up in. And it's like the hand of the angels, mercifully dragging you away from the world. Watch your heart, however, because the true safety from Sodom's destruction is an inside situation. It's not a, it's not a matter of proximity. It's a matter of the heart. And apostasy shows its ugly head when the nature of the heart is revealed and the allure of the world proves too much and we look back and some of the most egregious offenders against the glory and gospel of God are those who had an affiliation with a covenant family or a church or a community or a culture, but inside their heart was with the debauchery and the worldliness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And eventually it revealed itself. So this was what happened to Lot's wife. Her looking back revealed where her heart was at, and it revealed that true safety and true escape from the Lord's judgments is a matter of being covenantally bound to the Lord on a heart level where you trust His word and promises are the place of security, and you renounce looking to idols or other uh, inventions of man like the habitation and civilization of the world, to provide you the hope, the consolation, the future, and the salvation that only Christ alone can supply. Why salt? So you see that her looking back represents where her heart, what her heart condition was, but why did God turn her into a pillar of salt? <clears throat> I remember a little uh, nursery rhyme or something that I grew up with, and it was about Lot's wife, and it says at, towards the end of it, like, turned her into something like a pillar of pepper. I forget what pepper rhymed with, but it was a convenient rhyme. It was a little clever twist on this uh, mineral content that this woman assumed in this act. It seems strange to us, does it not? With a little study, you might have a better understanding, and this proved the case for me. The utter destruction of the vitality of a region was often accomplished at this time by salting the fields. So if you wanted to destroy an area, and by the way, in the law of God, in ordinary rules, laws of warfare, this was actually forbidden because it would destroy the vitality indefinitely of a region to produce food for future generations. 
So if you wanted to really wreak havoc on an area, you would salt the fields. You would take this, you know, mineral content with salt. And the idea is poison and sterilization. And then furthermore, this idea of salting or, uh, was incorporated. It, often, it was often invoked in covenant sanctions. So when a promise or an agreement was made between two parties, often that agreement, or indefinitely, or invariably, that agreement would be sealed by uh, sanctions or punishments if you were to break it. And many times the terms of a broken agreement were, that were invoked were uh, assaulting of the fields. In other words, if I break this covenant, may my fields be salted, would be a common construction of a covenant at this time. So you put these ideas together, and what, what do we learn? Well, Lot's wife, in breach of covenant with the Lord, was salted, so to speak, along with the land that she longed to return to. Lot had, was in breach of covenant, broken covenant with the Lord. So, uh, I'm sorry, Lot's wife was in broken covenant with the Lord. So the Lord brought sanctions, punishment against her, and literally salted her along with the whole field, the region, she longed to return to. Poison and sterilization. This is the effect of not binding yourself in relationship to the Lord. This is the effect. And this was, and unfortunately, the Lot was a righteous man. Every day he lived in Sodom, Peter tells us, he was tortured by the wickedness around him. And Lot's a strength of character was not sufficient enough to spread beyond himself even one layer of influence to grant unto his wife a testimony of godliness whereby she would repent and believe. No, and not even to his daughters either. We see their wickedness as the of story unfolds. Lot, so to speak, had sort of a bare minimum righteousness. But the tragic fallout in the aftermath of Sodom of Lot's legacy was that his wife proved to be worthy of the same poison and sterility that God brought as judgment against the very land that she craved and longed for. Second major point, Lot's shame. Lot's legacy in the aftermath of Sodom is highlighted by his wife's death, by her demise, how she died, looking back, the use of salt. Secondly, by Lot's own shame. We see Lot in a pitiful state, do we not? <clears throat> Three things. Fear, drunkenness, and nakedness all illustrate Lot's great shame that is highlighted in this tragically ever after story. Lot went, verse 30, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. He was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Something surprising about this, right? Lot is a conflicted individual. <clears throat> He's contradicted himself in his emotions. He is afraid to live in Zoar, but he had negotiated to go to this little place in the beginning. Verse 20, Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, uh, Lot begs the angel. He says, Let me escape there, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. In other words, Lot is controlled. He's riddled with fear. He's afraid to live in the hills in the wilderness because he has uh, tied so much of his comfort to the surroundings of a civilization and a city. But then, he's a, once he gets to Zoar, he's afraid to live in Zoar, so he runs out to the hills. And talk about a prisoner in your own mind. 
Lot is caught in his fear between a rock and a hard place, which raises a question which we'll answer later. Where do you run for refuge? If you are given, if you are controlled by fear, it doesn't matter where you run, you find no safe haven if you're, the, if you're a prisoner in your own mind. If you're controlled by this state of fear, it leads to all kinds of sinful, sorrowful consequences, including shame. So here's Lot, struggling with fear. His days are marked by fear, and this leads to shame. Now, why is Lot afraid? Perhaps he's afraid that Zoar would soon share the same fate of Sodom. He sees perhaps wickedness in Zoar, similar to that in Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed those cities, so he is perhaps afraid that God will destroy this one. Or, as commentators have noted, he could be afraid because perhaps the residents blame him in some way for the regional destruction that happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding region. Perhaps the inhabitants say that you are uh, at fault for this. You know, the forces that you were aligned with and rescued you from this or your family and what it represents is responsible for the destruction of our neighbors. And so perhaps the uh, citizens of Zawar placed some pressure and maybe he felt like an outsider in Zawar and thus his fear led him to run away. And nevertheless, what is clear is that Glock could find no consolation in city dwelling anymore Caught between this rock and a hard place, he was para paralyzed and thus ruled and subjugated by fear. Do you guys remember Adam's first job? Kids, do you remember what God gave Adam as his first job? It says, Take care, of the Take care of the garden. That is correct. I'll accept that. And this is called dominion, right? Go forth, God gives Adam this charge, and take dominion of the earth. Take care of the garden, as Theo reminds us. This is the call and the orientation and the design of mankind himself according to God's original intent. Fear will disable you from taking dominion. Lot was a victim and a subject. He was subjugated to his circumstances because he was paralyzed and disabled by fear. Lot during this time served really no productive purpose. It was simply hiding and cowering, paralyzed, paralyzed and disabled. Fear drives us to hide or to cower in impotence. Fear drives us to do this. Now there's a good, I think, application for our day today. As we look around the circumstances which we find ourselves, are we tempted to react in fear? I think only a fool would not be at least tempted by fear these days because there are real things it would appear to be afraid of. However, now I, I, let me lay out a, a scenario for the soul for you. Two ditches and a narrow road in between. On the one ditch is ignorance and naivete, or complacency, or apathy. And this, this is the ditch that Lot lived in when he was in Sodom. Ignorance and naivete. We shouldn't live there. On the, other, the ditch on the other side of the road, as it were, is fear. And so Lot jumps from one ditch to the other. What is the narrow road in between these two tendencies of the human soul? Well, in context here, let me suggest covenantal vigilance. Covenantal vigilance. More on that later. Abraham exemplified this covenantal vigilance, however, when he prayed, when he communed with the Lord, when he walked with the Lord, and he prayed for the lost. Instead of cowering in fear, instead of uh, maintaining the blissful ignorance and apathy of just being absorbed and going along to get along with culture, how about hit your knees 
and seek the face of God that he would have mercy on the city by raising up the righteous within it such that there's a sufficient minority to save the population from the full outpouring of his wrath. Instead of fear, instead of apathy, cowering in fear or languishing in ignorance, how about seeking the face of God and seeking his word and finding hope in his promises and walking with him so as to be a light and to proclaim that there is hope in the covenant. After all, God had promised Abraham a whole region, a promised land a place protected so long as the covenant was upheld from the eventuality of God's outpouring of his wrath, a sanctuary, a refuge, covenantal vigilance. Nevertheless, we see Lot's shame has taken form in this fear, or his shame is uh, as a result of this fear. And secondly, drunkenness. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. You can see here that the fear of Lot extends to his daughters as well. They're afraid that there will be no lineage. So they come up with a plan. Verse 32, come let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him. We may preserve offspring with our fathers. So they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in, lay with their father and so forth. This wasn't the only time that Lot was made drunk by his daughters. It happens like twice in a row two nights in a row. Whose fault is this? <clears throat> Whose fault? Who is at fault for this? Is this Lot's daughter's fault? Well, yeah, they share some culpability, do they not? Is, does Lot, is Lot a victim though? No, of course not. Lot has become drunken with wine and that's on him. What is drunkenness? At a later message, we might draw some parallels of Lot's drunkenness in this situation to Noah because a similar situation happened at the end of his life and legacy. But here we find Lot in a similar way. What is drunkenness spiritually or uh, biblically? Well, it's more than just being inebriated, having a buzz by drinking too much wine. That, although is, a, is sinful, it leads, though, it's symbolic, it is a testament of a state of the soul that is much more serious. What is drunkenness? The idea extends to the following. It's the suspension of godly faculties. In drunkenness, one does not have the ability to exercise discernment, to be covenantally vigilant, right? The suspension of godly faculties. It's a dulling of the spiritual senses. That is what drunkenness is biblically. It's falling under the influence of our sinful nature and its unsanctified passions. So it may have been a long time since you ever got uh, drunk, literally speaking, with alcohol. But have you wrestled with drunkenness spiritually? Have you fallen under the influence of your sinful nature and its unsanctified passions? Have you entertained a posture of the soul or influences? It could be wine, it could be anything. That causes you to suspend your godly faculties and dulls your spiritual senses. Uh, in the position of Lot, we ask ourselves, have you grown, like Lot, lazy? Have we grown lazy at our post, guarding the spiritual perimeter of our households, rendering ourselves and our families vulnerable to the deceptive and destructive forces of sin? Now, see, when we think about it this way, Lot's shame is easier to identify with. Probably the last thing that you could imagine yourself drunken in an incestuous relationship with your children 
after the last city you lived in has been burnt, or the last city you lived in you ran away from because you're scared, and the one before that was burned with fire from heaven. That seems kind of a far reach in our own experience. However, are we susceptible to fear? Are we susceptible to drunkenness, spiritually speaking? Certainly so. Have we ever suspended our godly faculties? Have we ever experienced a dulling of our spiritual senses? Falling under the influence of our sinful nature and its unsanctified passions? Growing lazy at our post? Failing to guard the perimeter of our households? Rendering ourselves and our families vulnerable to the deceptive and destructive forces of Satan? I'm here before you saying guilty. and I'm sure many more are guilty as well. In fact, Abraham is guilty of this. In the next chapter, we will have an example of where he fell short in covenantal vigilance. So Lot's legacy illustrates this in a really extreme way, but let us not lose the application. It really is a lot to learn here. So kids, I have a question for you. So Lot in his fear, first he runs to Zoar, then he runs to the cave. Here's a question. Where should Lot have run to find refuge? Where do you guys think Lot should have gone? Promised land? That's a good answer. Someone else? Say again, Isaac. To God? I like that. But there's an actual physical place that I submit Lot should have run to. Say again. Heaven? Not exactly. Maybe an adult could chime in. Where should Lot have gone? He feels unsafe in a cave. He, he can't be in Zoar. The comforts of the city could no longer console him. Where should Lot have gone? An adult? Well, who said that? Oaks of Mamre, did I hear? <laughs> Excellent. Whoever said that should preach the next sermon. That's very good. The Oaks of Mamre. What was significant about the Oaks of Mamre? We've covered this in previous messages. It was the place of God's visitation with Abraham where the covenant was confirmed, where God gave him promises and Abraham built an altar. It was the place where Abraham was abiding at the door of his tent when, we, when he was visited by God himself and two angels. What was Lot thinking? Why didn't he go back to the covenantal head, Abraham, and seek refuge by the Oaks of Mamre? to confess his sins before that altar, and almost like a prodigal son, right, return to his uncle. Well, it's because in his shame, he languished in his sin, and he didn't find full freedom the way he could have if he had repented and turned back to the place from whence he came all the way back in chapter 13. So this is Lot's shame that we see, his legacy and the aftermath of Sodom is illuminated by his wife's demise, his shame, and now we have his daughter's deception. Verses 34 through 36, we'll just cover this in brief. Their unseemly behavior, their debauchery, it's extreme. As we've read, they make their father drunk, so that, um, and then the firstborn went in, it says in 33b, and lay with their father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with my father, let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring for their father. And so they repeat this same plan again. They get their father drunk. They lie with him so as to try to preserve lineage. And why did they do this? Well, the deception that the daughters embark upon was motivated by a certain worldliness that we find referenced twice in verse 31. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. 
You see, where was the hope of Dot's daughters invested? Purely in earthly means. And in a later message, maybe we'll observe a parallel where this happened in Abraham's household as well, right? How would Abraham preserve an heir, especially he's so old? And the earthly means seem impossible. When you're 90, you don't typically get pregnant. It's impossible. The earthly means. So you got to seek another way. I know. How about Abraham takes a second wife, a maidservant, Hagar, and maybe that will be the way. And here, similarly, Lot's daughters say, we've looked at all the possibilities in the natural, and we see that there's just not realistic that we will ever find a man. They're betrothed, by the way, were left in Sodom, were burned with fire because they thought this was a joke. They thought that the coming judgment that was proclaimed by the angels and Lot himself was complete laughable farce. They had awoken in this wicked city day after day and never been really received a reckoning for their sins such as they should have been fearful of. But the day of God's patience wore out. And one day the fullness of his wrath was vented against Sodom. And what happened? The fiancés of Lot's daughters were burned with the rest of the city and the rest of the fields. And so now they're distraught. They're despairing. And they look to the earth and they find no hope there. They look to the world's ways and they find that they're at the end of the rope. What shall we do? There's no one on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth, so I guess we have to come up with a plan. So they deceive their, their uh, father by making him drunk, and they sleep with him. And this is where the incest situation secures for them children, but also comes with even deeper, protracted, long-standing consequences. This is the wages of sin. Uh, one commentator put it this way. The man, so think of Lot. In the prior chapter, earlier in the chapter, we find the man who is willing to let the mob force themselves on his daughters now wakes up from a drunken stupor two times, his daughters having forced themselves on him. There's a real extreme depravity and wickedness and fruit of poor parenting, to say the least, coming out here, right? So earlier in chapter 19, Lot had said, you know, to the men who are beating down the door, verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. This rapacious mob, Lot is willing to surrender his daughters and their virginity and probably their very lives to this mob. And so a man whose parenting puts at jeopardy the well-being of his children the wages of sin now comes home to roost. And the one who is willing to let the mob force themselves on his daughters now wakes up from a drunken stupor, his daughters having forced himself on them. This action was driven by worldly motives as we have seen after the manner of all the earth. And as horrific as these actions occur, you can understand why it was an option in the mind of his daughters. After all, they were children of Sodom and they hadn't learned godliness from their father. Now in Sodom, we actually get the word sodomy to describe rampant, unchecked, anarchic homosexuality. Homosexuality, generally speaking, is the uh, term sodomy actually comes from its quintessential, its classic example in the picture of the behavior of the men from the young to the old in this area. So let me ask you, is it any stretch that a city so wholly given over to their vices and sin and rampant, that's, and, and that uh, sinfulness 
evident in rampant sodomy, homosexuality, would not also normalize incest? Of course. Once you leave the standard of sexual ethics, of God's word and what he says, all bets are off. You know, we know this in our own land, do we not? <clears throat> it wasn't that long ago when the conservative right was saying, hey, if you redefine marriage as being a civil union or it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman, if that becomes a new standard of sexual ethics and all you have is the consent of the two parties, then that's a slippery slope, they said. We said, right, a slippery slope uh, that could open up the door to any kind of redefinition of terms when it comes to sexual ethics. And what did the world say? They scoffed. They said, oh, that's a logical fallacy. It's not a logical fallacy. It's better identified as a grounding objection. In other words, what is right and what is wrong when it comes to relationships within human, uh, human interaction and so forth? Well, if you leave the Bible as the standard of sexual ethics and righteousness, you move the grounding to something else and it opens up the door for everything. And that is what we're seeing in our day today. So the so-called uh, gay and lesbian agenda gives rights to the trans right, uh, rights agenda and the acronym LGBTQ needs to be about, according to the world, 75 letters longer or whatever it is. Why? Because we have lost the standard of sexual ethics. Now, if you raise your children and they imbibe the values of Sodom as referenced by this kind of reimagining sexual ethics, don't be surprised at any kind of debauchery you see because you open up the door of perversion wide, all the sinfulness of the wicked heart will rush in like a flood. And so it's no surprise that the daughters raised in Sodom adopted the values of that place and were likely, nor and not only was sodomy normalized, but also incest was no big deal to them. It was a viable means to preserve the next generation. Wow. Lot's legacy in the aftermath of Sodom, illuminated by these things? Boy, it is dark indeed. His wife's death, his shame, his daughter's deception. But as we close, we do see signs of hope. And this would, it comes by way of generational fruit. In the last portion of our text today, we read the following. <clears throat> in verse 36, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. First of all, what we find is the generational fruit of this ancestral union is not good. Because Lot failed to do chapter 19 verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 18, uh, 19, and this was God's instruction to Abraham, uh, he says that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. So uh, Lot failed to do that in his household. He did not command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And the consequences of this were children born by way of incest after he was in a drunken stupor. Moab means of his father. Ben-Ami means son of kindred or literally born of incest. <clears throat> this is the generational offspring of this relationship. And these, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they become the perennial um, enemies of the Lord. This confirms Genesis 3.15. The tension between the seed of the woman 
the devil's way of doing things and the fruit that it produces. Uh, I'm sorry, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the way, of God, the way that God arranges things and the fruit of that. You see this play out in Lot's legacy. Seed of the serpent versus seed of the woman. And so these, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they become the worshipers of Molech, accept human sacrifices. Abortion comes to mind in our day. First Corinthians, or First Kings, excuse me, 11, 5, and 7 record this. Both tribes, by the way, hired Balaam to curse Israel at the Exodus. So uh, young people, do you guys know who Balaam and Balak are? Young people, have you been studying that? Remember Balaam? Yeah, Balak was a king, that's right, and Balaam was a sorcerer. And remember, Balaam was on his donkey, and he was going to get paid by the king to pronounce a curse, right? Well, Balak was the king of the Moabites. So we see the fruit, the generational fruit of Lot's, the fallout of Lot's legacy, continuing forth in this negative manner. Turn with me, if you would, to Numbers 24. In Numbers 24, <clears throat> in spite of himself, Balaam is forced to prophesy the true word of the Lord. He gives his final prophecy, I think it's number four. In uh, Numbers 24, beginning verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes opened. The oracle, that is, of course, word, of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Listen, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. That's not a proper noun, probably, but a common noun, meaning sons of tumult. So sons of trouble, sons that make trouble. Verse 18, Edom shall be dispossessed. More enemies, perennial enemies of the Lord's people. Seir, uh, also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. So in Numbers 24, so get this. So the lineage of Lot's incestuous, incestuous sons are the byproduct of his incest with his daughters. Further on, generations down the line, they hire a false prophet, a soothsayer, to prophesy curses against the Israelites, God's people, as they're leaving Egypt and entering back into the Promised Land. Now, the prophet that they get to pronounce these curses is actually overruled by the sovereignty of God. And instead of what the king, Balak, wanted to hear, the king of the Moabites, he prophesies something different. He says, you know what's going to happen? A star and a scepter and a head crusher are going to arise out of this people that you seek to destroy. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Genesis 3.15 comes to mind, right? The seed of the woman, the heel will crush the serpent's head. And all the seeds of the serpent, the Moabites and what they represent, will be crushed by the star and by the scepter, by the head crusher arising out of Israel. This is interesting. The generational fruit is bearing witness to, in this negative sense, by the testimony of this prophet, of one who would arise. You didn't think this was a Christmas sermon, did you? It could well be a Christmas sermon. When that star shone on the day when the wise men were traveling, or days when the wise men were traveling, it came to rest at Jesus Christ. It was in part in the, a symbol in the sky to point out the fulfillment of this text. A star shall come out of Jacob. And when Jesus Christ was born in that lowly manger in an out-of-the-way place, 
to a virgin uh, named Mary, who was basically the polar opposite of uh, Lot's daughters, in her submission to the Lord, in her covenantal vigilance, that little baby would prove to be the savior of mankind and the ruler of the universe with a scepter in his hand like a rod of iron, according to Psalm 2 and the book of Revelation, to destroy his enemies and crush the head of all the unrepentant sinners, even those in the lineage of the seed of the serpent going back to the debauchery of Lot's daughters and the fruit of that in the, generational fruit, uh, in the generations that followed. Something's going on here. Final reference for you this morning. As we've gone through this sort of uh, lineage, this sort of timeline of events, the, we ask ourselves, a bitter end? Seems so far that the answer is yes. Is there anything sweet that can come from such a story? Well, if there is, that is a God-sized accomplishment. Only the Lord could bring something sweet out of this, could he not? Turn to Ruth chapter 4. So I don't know if you recall all the details of Ruth, but let me just give you a sentence or two by overview. The story begins in Ruth chapter 4, 1, with Elimelech and Naomi. They uh, are Bethlehemites. They live in Bethlehem. They fall on hard times. They move to Moab. They have two sons. Their names are Malon and uh, Chilion. Kilion, I think. Malon and Kilion are their sons. While they reside in Moab, Malon and Kilion take two wives. And their names are Ruth and Orpah. The hard times continue. Elimelech dies. Uh, that's Naomi's husband. Malon and Kilion die, both of their sons. And now you have a wit three widows that are left. Naomi, the Bethlehemite, and two Moabite women, Op Orpah and Ruth. And that's how the story opens. Now, this is desolation. You're in a place, the Moabite region. It's colored by the history that we've just read. These are women who are destitute and all provision and protection is lost. Their husbands have all been taken from them. And here's the question. Where do you run for refuge? Naomi knew where to run. She didn't run to Sodom where the fields were ripe and the place was lush, yet the sin was thick. She didn't run to Zoar. It's just a little city. Maybe it's a compromise, providing me comfort, and maybe it's small enough the Lord won't destroy it. She didn't run to a cave in fear and despair. She ran to Bethlehem. She ran to the place where she knew her kinsman redeemer resided. She ran to the place of covenantal promise, and this place would be so important. I told you this could be a Christmas message. At the end of the book of Ruth, in chapter 4, we pick up on Boaz, and this is what has happened. So Naomi, ins or Ruth, insists on accompanying her mother-in-law back to, to Bethlehem. But she's an outcast. She's a Moabite. She finds herself gleaning in the fields of one who is related to them through marriage, thus could be a kinsman redeemer. That man is Boaz. And now we see redemption taking place. We see a Moabite woman and we see a kinsman redeemer and holy matrimony preserving the line of the Messiah. Boaz had gone up to the gate, 4-1, and sat there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Boaz said, hey, turn aside, friend, sit down here. 
He turned aside and sat down. He took ten men, the elders of the city, and said, Sit down here, remember? We found Lot in the city of Sodom. Up to no good, likely, in that context. Here we find a different city, different context, a gathering of elders, and some negotiations ensue. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, so this is the guy who had the first responsibility to take care of these women who are estranged by death from their husbands. He says, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of the people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So if this guy doesn't uh, redeem, um, then Boaz is next in line. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz gives him the fine print in verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Oh, whoa, whoa, verse 6. The Redeemer said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. So he was interested in the land. He was not interested in marrying Ruth. Why? Because she was a Moabite. And all of this bad history that we've read, that accompanied the testimony of the Moabites. But there was a kinsman redeemer who was going to marry Ruth in spite of her Moabite origins. And this woman, she ran to the place of covenant refuge. And even though she was a Moabite, colored in her history and her past and her lineage by incest and debauchery, she had repented and she had run to Bethlehem following the hope that was found in a relationship such as this. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. You are a Moabite in your sin. I can't resist but to go to application. I am a Moabite in my sin. But blessed be those who are not left this day without a Redeemer. Is there one who would stoop so low as to redeem a Moabite like you and me in the debauchery of sin illustrated in the extreme and lot situation, but principally applies to every son of Adam? Yes, there is. He's a righteous man. He dwelt in the place of unapproachable light. He was the Boaz of Boaz, if you will. He was the only kinsman redeemer who could buy us back and wash us clean. And he did so. And that's what we see pictured here. Naomi continues, may his name be renowned in Israel. And so may our kinsman redeemer, may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi, oh, and this of course happened. So uh, Ruth actually has a kid, a, a child. Does anyone know who Ruth's son's name was? what Ruth's son's name was? So Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, is correct? Obed and his wife had a son named Jesse, Jesse is correct? Jesse had a son named David. David. Ran your three for three. <laughs> so we might have gone over this in a family worship last night. So Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. You can even look at the meaning of these names as things like God is gracious and gift and so forth and beloved. That's what David's name means. The polar opposite of the sons of, or the Moabites, so to speak. And so you see in this lineage, David, once we get to David 
Anyone who has a cursory knowledge of Scripture knows something important is going on here. Why? Because the ultimate kinsman redeemer would come by this line. That is indeed the son of David. Now listen to Easton's, Easton's Bible Dictionary. It says this. The story of Ruth, however, shows the existence of friendly relations between Moab and Bethlehem. By his descent from Ruth, David may be said to have had Moabite blood in his veins. Close quote. But let us add this. By extension, so does Jesus. Jesus, by extension, has Moabite blood in his veins, so to speak. Is this not amazing? You see, God can reach into a situation so depraved and so wicked, and he can redeem it for his glory. Remember the aim of this message? To expound the glories of redemption in spite of drunkenness and incest. To expound the glories of redemption in spite of drunkenness and incest. And there's uh, stuff that's even worse. Sodomy, the record of, so you know, the uh, legacy of Sodom. But this is exactly what God has done. Lot's legacy in the aftermath of Sodom was illuminated by shame on him, his wife dies. Shame on him, his water, daughters deceived him. Shame on him, we find him fearful, naked, and drunk. But then we find, in spite of all of this, that in the generational fruit that would come from this product of incest and so forth, would be a Moabite, Ruth, who the Lord would set his affection upon and redeem from this land when she took refuge in the place of covenant, running with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem and finding there her kinsman, Redeemer. Where do you run for refuge? Do you run to the caves of Zoar in fear? Or do, do you run to the city of Zoar in compromise? Do you run to the caves of the wilderness in fear? Do you run to Sodom for the promise of what the world offers? Or do you run to Bethlehem, where the real kinsman redeemer, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, would be born? Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, through the lineage of the seed of the Messiah with Moabite blood in his veins, testifying to the fact that God can work all things together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. It seems like Lot's story is a real extreme test for Romans 8.28, isn't it? But God proved himself able to redeem even this situation. And the glories of redemption are expounded in spite of all of this backdrop of sin and wickedness. Praise his holy name. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we see the glorious truth of your gospel against the backdrop and the hideousness of our sin in this text today. And as we've seen as much, it causes us, we trust, to cry out, Lord, all the more worthy is the lamb that was slain. Thank you, my kinsman redeemer. Thank you that you can work salvation from the worst of circumstances to the praise of your great name. I pray that your people would be encouraged and equipped through the proclamation of your word. And I pray that the lost would be drawn to salvation by the proclamation of the same. I pray, Lord, as we look to your scriptures for refuge, as we look to Jesus Christ for refuge, that we would find in him a faithful and secure savior that will keep us and that we would be encouraged by the indwelling spirit to be vigilant according to the covenant, that we might be faithful upon the day of your return, and be counted among those who are rescued, even as we seek to save the lost in the meantime, as you use us to proclaim the only way of hope and truth and life, the way Jesus Christ. May his name be glorified as we seek to apply this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.